Okay, let's get started with a word of prayer. Father, I thank you for your love for us, and I thank you for your faithfulness to us and the warnings in your word. I pray that uh, this study will be interesting for sure, but uh, I pray, Father, that beyond just intellectual curiosity, that we will uh, enjoy the instruction from your word and be encouraged by it, be warned by it. I ask this, that uh, you'll do these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, we're going to be in 1 Timothy chapter 6. Uh, but uh, as you turn to 1 Timothy chapter 6, we will, we, we will read uh, shortly from verses 9 and 10. Uh, I am going to start by reading from 2 Kings chapter 5. 2 Kings chapter 5. So we're basically going to read three passages. 2 Kings chapter 5, okay, uh, 1 Timothy chapter 6, and then a little bit from Mark chapter 10. Okay. Uh, so... Uh, this is from 2 Kings chapter 5. Now listen along here. This is a, a pretty interesting story. It's Old Testament. Now Naaman, commander of the army of the king of Syria, not a friend to Israel. Naaman was a great and honorable man in the eyes of his master, because by him the Lord had given him victory to Syria. Now Naaman's master is, of course, the king of Syria. So uh, Naaman was a great and honorable man uh, to the king of Syria. He was also a mighty man of valor, but a leper. He was sick, skin disease, deadly skin disease. And the Syrians had gone out on raids and had brought back a captive, a young girl from the land of Israel. She waited on Naaman's wife. Then she said to her mistress, If only my master were with the prophet who is in Samaria, for he would heal him of his leprosy. And Naaman went in and told his master, saying, Thus and thus said the girl who is from the land of Israel. So, you know, Naaman is a great commander of the Syrian army. Um, on one of the Syrian raids, they take uh, slaves, captives back. Uh, one of those slaves is a young Jewish girl who is serving Naaman's wife. Naaman was evidently a good and kind master because this young Jewish girl is interested in his health, it seems. And she says to uh, Naaman's wife, whom she's serving, she says, if only Naaman, this Syrian commander, could go and visit the prophet of God in Samaria, then his leprosy could be taken care of. So Naaman, I'm going to adjust this, Naaman hears about this and when he hears this report, he goes and he tells his master, that's the king of Syria, what this Jewish girl has said. And he says, verse 4, we get the summary, Thus and thus said the girl who is from the land of Israel. So Naaman's leprosy isn't a secret to anybody. Leprosy could not have been kept a secret. And the king of Syria, even though Israel is certainly not friendly with Syria, the king of Syria wants to see his faithful servant, Naaman healed. So, verse 5, the king of Syria said, Go now, and I will send a letter to the king of Israel. The king of Israel is not a faithful guy, as we will see. But the way the king of Syria is thinking about it is, I'm going to send a letter with you. You take it to the king of, of Israel. And in this letter, I'll basically, you know, well, here we go. It says, So Naaman departed. He took with him ten talents of silver, six thousand shekels of gold, 
and 10 changes of clothes. This is, <laughs> you know, my study notes say this is about 750 pounds of silver and 150 pounds of gold. So this is a fortune in our day and age. <laughs> it would have been, you know, it would have been a, a fortune in ancient times as well. They didn't have coinage back then. They traded in, in, in goods and material and these precious metals were the top of the line. And so this is how much the king of Syria is willing to give to the king of Israel in order to see Naaman healed. Then he brought the letter to the king of Israel, which said, here's what the letter from the king of Syria said. Now be advised when this letter comes to you, that I have sent Naaman my servant to you, that you may heal him of his leprosy. <laughs> okay, verse 7. And it happened when the king of Israel read the letter that he tore his clothes and said, Am I God to kill and make alive that this man sends me <laughs> a man to heal him of his leprosy? Therefore, please consider and see how he seeks to quarrel with me. Now, the geopolitical you know, structure is basically like this. Syria is far more powerful than the nation of Israel at this point in time. The king of Syria doesn't have any ill will towards the king of Israel, okay? He, he's sending, you know, a, a gift to have a favor done for one of his most faithful commanders, Naaman, because he, he, he hears from this girl that it, it is possibly within the power of the God of Israel who had a great reputation. It's possibly within the power of the God of Israel through one of his prophets. It's possibly within his power to have Naaman healed. So the king of Syria doesn't have any ill will or ill intentions, but he sends this to the king of Israel, thinking that if I'm gonna if I'm gonna request this of the prophet of Israel, I need to go through the proper political channels. I need to go through the king of Israel. But the king of Israel and the prophet of Israel are not on friendly terms because the king of Israel is not a godly man. And the prophet of Israel is a godly man. So they're, they're, they're not on, on good speaking terms right now. So when the king of Israel opens the letter and sees this simple note, be advised when this letter comes to you that I have sent Naaman my servant to you that you may heal him of his leprosy. He assumes that the king of Syria is simply going through these motions as a pretext to war because he knows he can't heal Naaman. You know, kings are powerful people, but they can't heal leprosy. And so he tears his clothes off and he says, therefore, see how he wants to quarrel with me. In other words, I can't heal this guy. And when I tell this guy that I can't heal him, he's going to go back to Syria and Syria is going to go to war with us on the pretext that I, I wouldn't heal his, his general. Verse 8. So it was when Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes and he'd sent to the, that he sent to the king and saying, why have you torn your clothes? Please let him come to me and he shall know that there is a prophet in Israel. Now when the, so when the king, who's not alone, I mean, this is, you can imagine a big, a big political to-do about an emissary from a foreign country coming and visiting the palace to visit with the king of Israel. You know, this was a big, you know, a, a big event. And the king had torn his clothes as a sign of, of, of frustration and sadness and mourning. And publicly he'd done this. So the word gets to, it gets to Elisha, who's the prophet that the Jewish slave girl was talking about. And Elisha, the man of God, heard this and he sent a message to the king saying, 
Why have you torn your clothes? Please let him come to me, and he shall know that there is a prophet in Israel. Verse 9, Then Naaman went with his horses and his chariot, and he stood at the door of Elisha's house. And Elisha sent a messenger to him, saying, Go and wash in the Jordan seven times, and your flesh shall be restored to you, and you shall be clean. So, you know, we've already, we've already said he's carrying with him a tremendous amount of wealth. We assume he's not alone. He's got horses. He's, he's riding in his own chariot. And he comes to the door of Elisha the prophet. And Elisha the prophet doesn't even go out to speak to him face to face. He sends a, a messenger, a servant, to go answer the door for him. And the servant says, oh yeah, Naaman, we heard you were coming. The prophet Elisha says, go wash yourself seven times in the Jordan River and your leprosy will go away. Your flesh will be restored. You'll be clean. Now, the Jordan River was a dirty river. It still is a dirty river. It's, it's not a, a pristine mountain river. It's a, it's a dirty, muddy water kind of looking river. It's not, it wasn't known for cleanliness. Uh, Syria had some really, you know, mountainous streams and I mean so the kind of stream that you would want to you would you'd picture you know like a Alaskan stream with coming out of the mountains and snow melt but in Israel the Jordan River in Israel was not a reputation of being a a, a river of cleanliness so Naaman is offended at this rather simple solution and probably it the prophet of God not coming out and speaking to him himself. I mean, he brought all this money and all this. He made this journey. Verse 11. But Naaman became furious and went away and said, Indeed, I said to myself, he'll surely come out to me and stand and call on the name of the Lord his God and wave his hand over the place and then he'd heal the leprosy. Are not the Abana and the Farpar, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? Could I not have washed in them and be clean? So he turned and went away in rage. In other words, what he's saying is this stupid Israelite, I expected him to come out and do this big religious thing. You know, you see the, the healing ceremonies on TV with all the the fake tele-evangelist and you know they're they're whacking people on the head and they're saying be healed and they're 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 flying around the stages and they're putting on the big show right and this is what Naaman expected to happen right because people aren't just healed from leprosy somebody's going to be healed from leprosy uh, surely there's going to be some big show right and so that's what he expected he said I came here and I expected that you know he would he would come out to me and he would call on the name of Yahweh and He'd wave his hands all over the place and, and then maybe heal the leprosy. But he said to go bathe in a river. Come on, there are two better rivers than this in Damascus, in, in Syria. I didn't need to come all down. If this was a matter of bathing in the water, I could have done this in Syria. This fool doesn't even know that you can't wash leprosy off in the water. Naaman's really upset. So he turned and he went away in rage. Verse 13 says, And the servants came near and spoke to him and said, My father. Now, <laughs> the servants uh, of Syria uh, get a pretty good reputation in this chapter. Now, that, you know, I would imagine that when a military guy was furious and lost his cool, it's probably, 
you know, probably takes a little bit of guts to go and speak to them, right? But, but these guys care about their master. You know, they're slaves, they're servants, just like the Jewish girl. But Naaman was a good master. You know, he was, he was, he was the kind of master that you'd be willing to serve. He took care of his people. He had a good reputation. They've watched him suffer. They know he's going to die. He can't, he can't have contact with his, with his, his wife like he, he would, his family like he would, his, because he's sick. And they care. And so he's in a rage. He's stormed off, but his servants come, and this is what they say to him. My father. No, they're not, he's not their dad. This is a reverential way of talking to the master of, of slaves. My father, if the prophet had told you to do something great, would you not have done it? In other words, if the prophet had said, yeah, we'll heal your leprosy, but, but you're going to have to have to give up all of this wealth that you've brought with you, or, or you're going to have to climb to the top of the highest mountain, and then God will take it away. If, if the prophet had told you to do something great in order to be rid of the leprosy, then wouldn't you have done it? Because that would have been impressive in your mind. That would have seemed reasonable. How much more then when he says to you, go and wash and be clean? See, the servants, they're onto this. They're onto it, I think, probably because they are servants. They say, look, you would have tried it if he'd have told you to do some, some giant feat of strength, right? This is a small thing. Why won't you do this? This is a small thing. So he went down and he dipped seven times. Now, see, that tells you how Naaman felt about his servants. Yeah, he was a master. Yes, they were slaves. But he was not the kind of master who kept his slaves in chains or beat them or, or treated them cruelly or sold them back and forth. You know, he, was, he was a good master. He listens to a little Jewish girl, and now he listens to these guys. Naaman's a reasonable man. So he went down and he dipped seven times in the Jordan, that filthy river in Israel. According to the saying of the man of God, and his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child, and he was clean. Because the God of Israel does not need the money of men to do amazing things. The God of Israel does not need the showy presentation of a Benny Hinn flying around on a stage like he's in some choreographed dance to do a miracle. The God of Israel didn't need Naaman to, to do some great work or accomplishment on his own. When God acts, he acts solely on his own will and purposes. And what he demands from those who would benefit from his actions is faithfulness. And it took faith to go down into the Jordan River and to wash seven times. And so God healed him. Verse 15 says, And he returned to the man of God. He and all of his aides. This is a big, this is a big traveling party that he brought with him from Syria. And he came and he stood before him and he said, Indeed, now I know that there is no God in all the earth except in Israel. Now, please take a gift from your servant. This is amazing. <laughs> he doesn't just 
want to worship the God of Israel who's healed him. He recants any allegiance to belief in any other God. <laughs> he doesn't just say the God of Israel is really impressive. No, he says the God of Israel is so amazing that now I know there is no other God in all the world. Only the God of Israel. So he goes to, he goes to the man of God and he says, take a, please take a gift from your servant. Verse 16, but he said, as the Lord lives before whom I stand, I will receive nothing. And he urged him to take it. He brought all this money, enough to make you or I rich today. And the man of God says, as the Lord lives before whom I stand, as Yahweh lives, I will receive nothing. And Naaman urged him to take it, but he refused. Why? Because we read in 1 Timothy chapter 6, we read the verses last week, that it is the false prophets and the false teachers who suppose that godliness is a means of gain. Elisha didn't heal Naaman. God did. And whatever part in that God allowed Elisha to play, it's not anything worthy of making Elisha rich. We understand Naaman's heart. If you've been told you have months to live with cancer and you're dying and someone takes it away, I mean, what wouldn't you give out of gratitude for that? Surely Naaman would be an evil man if he didn't have this heart of surrendering his possessions. What good are possessions to a dead man? But Elisha does not serve God for gain. Verse 17, so Naaman said to him, Then, if not, if you won't take it, please let your servant be given two mule loads of earth. For your servant will no longer offer either burnt offering or sacrifice to any other gods, but to Yahweh. Yet in this thing, may Yahweh pardon your servant. When my master, that's the king of Syria, when Naaman's master, the king of Syria, when my master goes into the temple of Rimon to worship there, and he leans on my hand, and I bow down in the temple of Rimmon. When I bow down in the temple of Rimmon, may Yahweh please pardon your servant in this thing. You see, as a commander of Syria, he was expected to take part in the sort of ceremonial worship of the God of Rimmon. And he's already professed he doesn't believe Rimmon even exists. And he wants to sackfuls, two mule loads of dirt so that he can build an earthen altar outside his home with, with dirt from the land of Israel that he may worship the one true God of Israel. But he's going to have to go through these ceremonial uh, rituals with his king. And he says, may God, when he sees me do this, may the Lord please pardon your servant in this thing. Now we might expect Elisha to say, no, you know, be faithful and bear the consequences. But he says to him, go in peace. Apparently, the prophet of God puts no further obligation on this Gentile who would worship Yahweh. Go in peace. So he departed from him a short distance. That's a beautiful story.
And here's where it gets interesting. Verse 20. But Gehazi, a man by the name of Gehazi, the servant of Elisha, the man of God, said, Look, my master has spared Naaman this Syrian while not receiving from his hands what he brought. But as the Lord lives, I will run after him and take something from him. So Gehazi is not, not thrilled. He sees opportunity in all this wealth, this amazing amount of wealth that Naaman brought that Elijah, Elisha refused. So Gehazi pursued Naaman. When Naaman saw him running after him, he got down from the chariot to meet him and said, Is all well? He recognized Gehazi. He, he was the servant of Elisha, whom he'd just been with. He sees him running up to his chariot. So he hops down. He says, Is everything okay? And he said, All is well. All is well. My master sent me. Lie. My master sent me. Elisha sent me, saying, Indeed, just now two young men of the sons of the prophets have come to me from the mountains of Ephraim. Please give them a talent of silver and two changes of garments. So, see, Gehazi's not trying to get so much money that will draw attention. Just enough. So Naaman said, please take two talents. And he urged him and he bound two talents of silver in two bags with two changes of garments and handed them to two of his servants and they carried him on ahead of him. And when he came to the citadel, he took them from their hand and stored them away in the house. Then he let the men go and they departed. Now he went in and he stood before his master. And Elisha said to him, Where did you go, Gehazi? He said, Your servant did not go anywhere. Then he said to him, Did not my heart go with you when the man turned back from the chariot to meet you? Is it time to receive money and to receive clothing and to buy olive groves and vineyards and sheep and oxen and male and female servants? Therefore, the leprosy of Naaman shall cling to you and your descendants forever. And he went out from his presence, leprous as white as snow. The passage is called The Greed of Gehazi in most Bibles. That's the subtitle. Gehazi sees an opportunity to go and to get from Naaman all that he can get from him. And he's very calculated in, in what he might ask. And he asked for a talent of silver and two changes of clothes. Clothing, by the way, was a great sign of wealth in the ancient world. It wasn't easy to make clothes. You didn't just go to Walmart and buy shirts for $9.99. So he goes and he asks for a talent of silver and two changes of clothes. And he gets two talents of silver from Naaman. And two changes of clothes. And he goes and he hides what he's gotten from Naaman. But the moral of the story is, is not the talents and the, the clothing that he got from Naaman. It's what else he got from Naaman. Naaman came to Israel with leprosy. And that's what Gehazi's greed got from Naaman. He got Naaman's leprosy. Why? Because he saw godliness as a means of gain. Because he was greedy. Because he wanted to be rich. He wanted to be rich. With that, let's read now 1 Timothy chapter 6. Just two verses. 
Paul writing to Timothy, 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 9 and 10. Now here's the warning. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation and a snare, and into many foolish and harmful lusts which drown men in destruction and perdition. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil, for which some have strayed from the faith in their greediness, and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. And then, if we will, let's just read verse 11, which we'll cover next week. But you, O man of God, flee these things. Flee greed. Flee false teaching and disputes. Flee the kind of selfishness that seeks to get rich. Flee these things and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, and gentleness. Here's the warning again. Those who desire to be rich. There's nothing wrong with being rich. Abraham was rich. Nothing wrong with being rich. But there is a warning here in the verses for those who desire to be rich. And the warning comes to us in the form of four metaphors. Four metaphors. Four pictures. Here they are. First one is a snare. Verse 9 says this. Those who desire to be rich fall into temptation and a snare. A snare, the word here is the idea of the kind of snare that would trap a bird, that someone would catch a bird in. I wonder what Paul has in mind, what God has in mind when he uses this language to warn us. You know, Satan, according to Ephesians chapter 2, is the prince of the power of the air, the rulers who rules over the sons of disobedience, whom we all once followed, Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2. And I wonder how many people Satan snares into mindlessly following him through a path of personal ambition and personal achievement through the snare, the trap, the temptation of a desire to be rich. Have you ever seen an animal caught in a trap? You know, they, they, they get caught in a trap because there's something there, there's bait, there's something there to lure them. And it looks so easy and it's right there and it's it's just, you know, they don't have to kill something to get it. They don't have to hunt it. It's just lying on the ground. That's what the desire to be rich is. It's just, it's just idling in the back of our mind. It's just idling in our subconscious. And if we just give in to that desire, Satan closes the trap. If you desire to be rich, uh, just think of all the moral compromises you'll make. You'll work hours that you shouldn't work. You'll do jobs you shouldn't do. You'll tolerate things you shouldn't tolerate. You'll be quiet when you should speak up. You won't give when you should. You won't help when you should. You won't love when you should. And with every bit of riches that you manage to obtain to, your soul will become obsessed with clinging on to it, 
with buying something secure with it, with investing in something safe with it, so that you don't lose the little treasure that you've accumulated. It's like a, a trap, a snare, and it's got you, and you can't be free of it, because trying to free yourself from it would require you to cut off the limb or the leg that it was trapped by, to cut off and sever a piece of yourself, because that's what a desire to be rich does. It attaches one's self-worth to what one can obtain. So that it becomes impossible to separate oneself from one's riches without cutting off a limb. First metaphor. Those who desire to be rich fall into temptation and a snare. Second metaphor. And into many foolish and harmful lusts which drown men in destruction and perdition. The words here, destruction and perdition, I, I prefer a different translation, ruin and destruction. Perdition is just ongoing. It's a, it's a permanent destruction. The idea of destruction, the first word is ruin. What ruins them? Foolish and harmful lusts desires. Maybe I'll try that. Maybe I'll do that. Look what I could get here. I might be able to get here. I can. And the metaphor is of a man drowning. They let you flail and you, and you try and you, and you can't, you can't get any more air. And you see people like this, who even as they they gasp about to try to obtain something that is always just out of reach. Their own soul is suffocating. And their relationships die. The friends they have are built around the friends that can obtain for them what they want. The way they live is organized around the structures of power and income, prosperity. Their marriages can die and the children don't have the relationship with them that they should. And they can't control their moral vices. And with every little foot they fall further in the water, it becomes more and more impossible to get a fresh breath till they ruin themselves, till they destroy themselves. And from God's perspective, when he sees people living their lives like this, desiring to be rich, he sees them as if they were drowning. Precious people made in the image of God, suffocating and drowning. They want money. Verse 10. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It doesn't say for the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. It doesn't mean that every person who ever does something evil did it because they love money. That's not what it says. It says the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. There is nothing evil out there that can't be touched by the person who loves money. The person who loves money is vulnerable to succumbing to every evil imaginable. Because the love of money 
replaces a love of God. The love of money takes the place of the love of God. And when the place that belongs to God becomes supplanted with the love and devotion to something else, the pursuit of something else, all the avenues of evil are open at that point. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Here's the third metaphor. For which some have strayed from the faith in their greediness. Some have, like sheep, gone astray. That's the idea. Straying from the faith. Wandering from the faith. These people, because of their love for money, have become lost they become detached. They find themselves in a place that they did not anticipate being in. And because it says strayed from the faith, it obviously has in mind here people who once professed to be followers of Jesus Christ, sheep of his flock. But loving money has become their new master. The almighty dollar has become their new leader. And they look up and they find themselves in a place that they did not expect to be in. And in that place, all kinds of evil is around them. That's the third metaphor, like a sheep who has strayed. It says, they've strayed from the faith in their greediness. And here's the fourth metaphor, pierced themselves through with many sorrows. The end result, they've done this to themselves. Yeah, maybe it was a trap that they fell into, but they've gone into it. They have done it. And they have chosen not to repent of it. And they have continued to justify it to the point where they have cut themselves as if they were taking a sword or a knife or an arrow or a spear and jabbing it and plunging it into their own flesh. They pierce themselves through with many sorrows. They are culpable for this. Someone else didn't pierce them through. They plunge the knife into their own heart. Why sorrows? Why sorrows? Because the pursuit of riches and riches themselves do not fulfill the promise that they lure someone into this trap with. Uh, the richest, one of the richest men in the world, Jeff Bezos, founder of Amazon, right? Founded it with his wife. It's just a little book operation. Now look at it. Richest men in the world. Cheated on his wife, divorced his wife, married somebody else, gave up half his wealth. I don't care who you are. You can't tell me that's successful. Yeah, he's got a lot of money. And the woman who he promised to love until they died, and the woman who first loved him, the woman who slept with him, who comforted him who worked beside him doesn't want anything to do with him 
I wish that was an uncommon story, but it's not. And it afflicts the rich, and it afflicts the poor. You don't, you don't get out of this passage just because you don't have a lot of money. Because the warning is not for those who actually are rich. It's a warning that those who desire to be rich. Capitalism works in the world because it exploits the basic human condition of greed. <laughs> I actually watched Peter Schiff, one of, the, one of the wealthiest guys in the world, talk about this the other day, and he was talking about it as a positive thing. The reason why capitalism works is because it motivates people to go and do profitable things for society by promising to reward them. If they're innovative, if they're valuable, they will get paid, and everybody wants to get paid. So capitalism works because of greed. But for the Christian, capitalism shouldn't work because of greed. The Christian should work no matter what form of government they're in. Because the Christian doesn't work out of a desire to get rich or out of a desire to have more. The Christian is supposed to go to work out of a desire to honor God and to meet the obligations that God has given him and to be able to be generous the way that God has called him to be. Capitalism should not be the motivating factor of the Christian and the desire to buy the bigger thing and own the bigger stuff and have the bigger account and feel more secure because of all the riches that they've accumulated. That's what makes capitalism work for the rest of the world. But the Christian works unto the Lord, just like Joseph when he was a slave in Egypt. The Christian works unto the Lord. And with that passage from Mark chapter 10, read this and then wrap up the warning. Mark chapter 10, beginning in verse 17, the familiar passage, but I'll read it anyway. Now as he was going, this is Jesus, as he was going out on the road, one came running and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? So Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good but one, that's God. And you know the commandments. Do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness. Do not defraud, honor your father and your mother. And he answered and he said to him, Teacher, all these things I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, Ah, but one thing you lack. This is a, after all, a rich man. <laughs> One thing you lack, go your way, sell whatever you have, and give to the poor, and you'll have treasure in heaven, and then come, take up the cross, and follow me. This is a man caught in the snare, in the trap, of a desire to be rich. Now Jesus tells him he must amputate the treasure from his life, because it's not just wealth this treasure has a grip on the man's soul. And Jesus has diagnosed it and he's going to show the man, look, you want to have eternal life? You want to be righteous? All you have to do is follow me. And in following me, here's command number one I'm going to give you. Let go of all your money, all your possessions, and just come follow me. Now, if Jesus had said that to you know, Lazarus and the story of the rich man Lazarus, it would have been very easy for Lazarus to let go of his possessions. 
Jesus doesn't say that to Lazarus, and we don't get a face-to-face -face instruction with him. Matter of fact, we don't get Jesus saying this specifically like this to anyone else. Yeah, he tells Peter to drop his nets and come follow him, but Peter still is a homeowner later on in the Gospels. They still own boats and nets. And But for this man, this man who had a desire to be rich and who loves his money, Jesus diagnoses the snare that he's caught in. And to free the man from the snare, he says, just cut yourself off from your riches. They won't be worthless to you. You can give, give the proceeds to the poor and you'll have treasure in heaven. I'm not asking you to go burn your money. Do something that will lead to eternal prosperity and then come and follow me. Get out of the trap. Stop drowning. But the man was sad at this word, and he went away sorrowful, for he had great possession. What did Paul warn Timothy? They pierced themselves with many sorrows, those who desire to be rich. So this man, when he realizes that he loves his money too much to follow his God, he turns away sorrowful. He said, he's done it to himself. He's done it to himself. He could let go of the money and follow Jesus, be with his God and be happy. He chooses sadness. He walks away sad. And I wonder if he said to himself, why am I sad? I, I still have all my money. I, I'm no different than when I came before because he was sad before he got to Jesus. That's why he's sad when he walks away from him. I wonder if he said to himself, gosh, I didn't realize how sad I was. But he's sad. He's in no worse shape than before he came and spoke with Jesus. He's in the exact same shape. He was sad before. He didn't look like it. He looked like a rich young guy. And he's sad afterwards. And so he chooses sadness. He plunges the knife in his own chest. And I can see him going away to drown himself in drink or drown himself in stuff or drown himself in his next business venture to try to numb the pain that comes from turning away from the Almighty God. The Almighty God didn't turn away from him. Jesus doesn't shake this man off and say, you're too wealthy to follow me. No. Jesus doesn't condemn the man for his wealth. He extends to him the hand of fellowship. And the man walks away sad. You know, I, I wonder if it's even possible for us to realize the depravity of the world around us that defines happiness and accomplishment and ambition by how successful we are at getting things, at attaining things. Well, Paul has a warning for Timothy. And going into this Labor Day weekend where we celebrate work, <laughs> what a thing to celebrate, and we take a rest. There are things in life more important than money. God is more important than money. And we're supposed to serve Him with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. 
And you can't serve God and money because you can't serve two masters. And the rich man was told that he's got to let one of these masters go. He's got to cut himself out of the trap, the snare that's got him. And he can't do it. So he despises one master, Jesus, in favor of another, money. I hope that, I hope that you can let go of your desire to be rich. I hope that it's truly okay with you that you just have whatever God gives you. I hope you find freedom from it. That's the metaphor of the snare. Freedom versus slavery. I hope you find a breath of fresh air, life and joy as opposed to drowning and harmful lusts and passions. I hope you find a place in this world, a place in the faith, a place before your God as opposed to being like a sheep that strayed far from where he ever anticipated going. And I hope you can find joy in Jesus and satisfaction in him as opposed to the self-inflicted damage that a love of money will do to a person's soul. Let me pray for you now. Father, I thank you for the work that your son Jesus has done to free us from sin. And now your people being found free, please protect us from the traps and snares of this world around us. Help us with eyes to see clearly, to be able to spiritually discern things that are not self-evident all the time, and to evaluate all that we do through the light of your word and what you'd have us do and how you'd have us live, and to remain faithful and steadfast until the day that we die. Help us to pursue the good things, godliness, righteousness, love, gentleness, kindness. Help us not to pursue the things that are perishing. Help us not to desire to be rich. It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen.